Good morning. My name is Lori Turner, and our scripture reading today comes from the New Testament book of John. I'll be reading from chapter 14, verses 16 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, one who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives in you now, lives with you now, and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you will also live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me, and because they love me, My Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lori. Well, bear with me, you all, today. I'm fighting a cold up here, and in a few minutes, I get to invite your healthy daughter into my arms. So so I'm looking forward to that. Um, So yeah, bear with me all today. It's the evening of March 3, 1991, and a high-speed chase has come to an end. Los Angeles Police Department officers have cornered a suspect by the name of Rodney King on a parole violation. Unbeknownst to the officers, a bystander by the name of George Holliday picked up his home video camera and captured the following events. The four LAPD officers, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, Theodore Brizino, and Stacy Kuhn, wield their clubs and unleash a barrage of blows to the suspect while he crawls helplessly on the ground. Several kicks to King's head emphasize their point. The beating lasts nearly 15 minutes, and King suffers skull fractures, broken bones, broken teeth, and permanent brain damage. George Halliday releases the tape, sparking international outrage. The officers are charged with felony assault, to which they plead not guilty. The trial is moved to Simi Valley, California, a largely Caucasian suburb and home to many LAPD officers. The trial lasts seven days, and the jury acquits the men of almost all charges. The verdict enrages the city, and riots break out in the predominantly black area of South Los Angeles. South Los Angeles residents begin starting fires, looting stores, and attacking non-blacks. Korean business owners are especially targeted. The governor sends in the National Guard, and a curfew is enforced. The riot lasts six days, leaving 50 dead. 2,000 injured, and 1 billion in property damage. 
In this climate of racial tension, Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman are found stabbed to death on June 13, 1994. Nicole Brown is the ex-wife of celebrity athlete O.J. Simpson. In the early morning of June 14, 1994, police arrive to O.J. Simpson mansion and find his Ford Bronco stained in blood as well as a bloody glove that matches one found by Goldman's body. More traces of blood are found throughout the mansion, and O.J. is taken into custody. Two days later, O.J. and his kids attend Nicole Brown's funeral. The following day, O.J. is charged with the murders of Brown and Goldman. Simpson flees police in his white Bronco. The television broadcast of the NBA Finals is interrupted to track the 60-mile pursuit. People line the streets, cheering the celebrity on. Simpson finally surrenders at his house at 9 p.m., He is apprehended and pleads not guilty. O.J. assembles his legal counsel, dubbed the Dream Team. Included in this Dream Team lineup are Robert Shapiro, civil rights activist Johnny Cochran, and personal friend Robert Kardashian. Robert Kardashian was then married to Kris Kardashian, who would go on to star with her children in Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Following the initial discovery of Brown and Goldsman's bodies, O.J. had stayed at Rob's mansion to avoid the media. The Dream Team cost O.J. an estimated $50,000 per day, which he funded from his sports memorabilia sales. A critical moment in the case comes on June 15, 1995. Against the advice of the other members of the prosecution, Christopher Darden has O.J. try on the gloves. O.J. shows his hands to the court and declares the gloves too tight. It was later discovered that O.J. had been advised not to take his arthritis medicine for two weeks leading up to the trying on of the gloves. The lack of arthritis medicine would create inflammation and prohibit O.J. from bending his knuckles. On October 3, 1995, after less than four hours of deliberation, the jury delivers a verdict of not guilty, making O.J. Simpson a free man. In many ways, the O.J. Simpson saga is about a beloved celebrity's fall from grace. But in many ways, it's about a legal battle. And it's a fight between prosecution and defense. Who can win the game in the courtroom? O.J. Simpson's defense lawyers or prosecution in the city of Los Angeles? And I bring up the O.J. Simpson court case because our text today takes place in a courtroom. And there is a judge... And there are lawyers, and there is a case to be made, and there's a defendant. And so let's look at this text that takes place in a courtroom in John 14, 16 to 17. Jesus says to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him. Because he lives in you, and now and later will be in you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Jesus uses this word advocate. And if you look across the translations, there's a lot of different words, because this word advocate in Greek is very difficult for the translators to lock a meaning onto. And so if you look across the translations, they all have different words. Like the NIV from 1984 uses the word counselor, and then the updated NIV in 2011 uses the word advocate. ESV adopts for helper, NKJV uses the word comforter, and the NLT, as we're reading out of now, uses the word advocate. I think the word advocate and counselor 
together capture that meaning because the Greek word is parakletos. Para, meaning not before, not behind, but to stand alongside. And then kletos means to argue. And so this is a legal counsel who stands alongside somebody, is before somebody, and argues someone's case. O.J. Simpson assembled his dream team of lawyers that costed him $50,000 a day, and they would stand beside him, and they would argue his case and advocate for him. They were for him to argue his case. And the Holy Spirit is our advocate who argues our case. Now, the question with that is, well, where does he argue our case? In what courtroom does he argue our case? And the truth is, is the courtroom of our hearts is where the Holy Spirit advocates our case. Look at Romans 15, verse A, or Romans 8, 15, the first part of the verse. And I'm going to use N.T. Wright's New Testament translation because he fleshes this difficult stuff out in a way that we can analyze. He says this, You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, did you, to go back again into a state of fear? This is that song that we just sang, No Longer Slaves. Paul says, You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to go back to a state of fear. And Tim Keller, who is a pastor that I credit a lot for the exegesis of this sermon, says that this means that our hearts are full of fears. We fear, deep down inside, that we are not worthy of God's love. The spirit of fear whispers to us a baseline skepticism that we are worthy, that we are valuable. He whispers a baseline skepticism that we don't measure up, that in the end, God truly doesn't love us, is displeased with us, that we are at our core failures. If you think about it, how often do you wonder and worry about your value in God's eyes? This is the spirit of fear that whispers to us that we don't measure up, that we've done too many bad things in our lives. How could God love someone who has done so much bad? You know, God whispers to us like, you know, Bill, you're you're a chronic luster. Like you looked at the women last week and you lusted over her and God hates lusters. And so how could God love somebody like you? Because you and I both know that lusting is a sin and God hates lusters. And so there's no way that God could love you, Bill. This is the spirit of fear that whispers to us a baseline skepticism about the promises of God that indeed God does love us and that we do have value in God's eyes. That our hearts are too broken, that our hearts are too cracked, too dirty to be loved by God. But Paul says this, he says, you didn't receive that spirit, you received a spirit of sonship in whom we call out Abba Father. And so the spirit counters that spirit of fear and says that is lies. The spirit of fear is a liar because you indeed do have value and you have received sonship or daughtership in the eyes of the king. You know, recently I was talking with Becca two weeks ago, Becca, our worship leader, and, and um, it's one of my favorite calls that we've had. And I was just reveling in all of the cool things that God was doing here at Grace. And it was just one of those moments where I felt like I had no strategy or no plan but yet I saw God on the move. Like, oh, my plan was faithfulness. That was the extent of my plan. 
And yet I saw the Lord on the move, and I'm just seeing him do things through spiritual gifts, and I'm seeing him do things through Jim, and I'm seeing him you know, gather creative people in our congregation to brainstorm about Christmas, and I'm just like overwhelmed by all the amazing things that are going on here at Grace. And, and I kept saying to Becca, as I was just like in wonder about all this, I said, you know, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve a place like Grace, and I don't deserve this incredible work of the Lord. And and it was, it was at one point where you stopped me and you said, Bill, I, I hear your heart when you say that you don't deserve any of this. She said, but like, may I remind you, Bill, that like you are God's son and that as your father, he delights in showering you with goodness and his gifts. And it was at that moment that she completely reframed the conversation for me because I went from seeing myself as a fallen guy in need of grace every single day to seeing myself through the eyes of my heavenly Father who rejoices in giving me good things and rejoices and delights in giving me gifts. I mean, if I love my kids unconditionally and if I have this love that I can never even explain to them and if I just rejoice in giving them stuff, they have so much stuff already, but yet I just continue to give them things. And I can't help myself. It just gives me joy to see them receive these gifts in joy. And if I get that much joy out of that, how much more does my Heavenly Father get joy out of showering me with gifts and His goodness? And so we are indeed children of the Father, and He delights in showering these gifts upon us. And then Paul kind of closes his argument in verse 16. He says, when that happens, it is the Spirit Himself giving supporting witness to what our own spirit is saying, that we indeed are God's children. So picture a courtroom, and the spirit of fear is in the position of the prosecution. And the prosecution is saying, the defendant is unlovable. The, this defendant has done too much wrong. They have too many uh, tallies in the bad column. Their heart is too broken. Their heart is too sinful. They have no value. They are unlovable by God. And what happens in that courtroom of our heart is the Spirit becomes our advocate and our legal counsel, and he rises to our defense. And the Spirit says, the prosecution is a liar because that spirit of fear is saying things that are untrue because this son or daughter has been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, has been drawn to God throughout their childhood, has been regenerated by God to become one of God's family members, and now is being conformed to the image of Jesus one day made complete when this son or daughter meets their heavenly father face to face. And the spirit, uh, the spirit rises to our defense and says, that's what's going on here. And when I give that defense, all I hear is a work of the Lord, and I hear nothing of the defendant's performance. And so what's happening here is a complete work of God and nothing to do with the defendant's performance. So what you say, spirit of fear, is lies. That's what the spirit does for us as our advocate. He also advocates for us by being against us. Look at, look at James 4 verse 5. And again, I'm going to use N.T. Wright's translation in the New Testament. James says, Or do you suppose that when the Bible says, He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, it doesn't mean what it says? Huh? Okay, that's another one of these verses. They're like, what's going on here? What does this mean? He yearns, the spirit yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. What does this mean? Well, again, Tim Keller, who I'm grateful for for a lot of the exegesis, says that the spirit 
is so for us that he can be against us for us. The Spirit is so for us that he can be against us for us. What he does is he yearns over the children of God. And he watches as we as children of God give ourselves away to all of these sinful mistresses and it breaks his heart. Because he yearns for us. He says, he's mine. He says, she's mine. And it breaks his heart as he sees the child of God giving himself or herself away to all of these sinful mistresses. And so the Spirit stands in the way of us and treats us almost like an addict and says, I'm not going to let you go there. I'm not going to let you do that. Because that path that you're about to go down is going to destroy you. And I love you so much and I am so for you that in this moment I am against what you are trying to do. I'm not going to let you go down that path. That's how the Spirit is for us as our advocate, that he yearns for us and longs for us and doesn't want to see us give ourselves away to sin and all these mistresses to whom we do not belong. Back to our main text. John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Another advocate. So we've established that the first advocate is the Spirit, or the first advocate that we've mentioned in this sermon is the Spirit, But now Jesus is talking about another advocate. Who's the other advocate? Look at his final words in the section of Scripture we read today in verse 26. The other advocate is Jesus. He says, Jesus says, But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to take my place in your life. He's going to teach you of everything and remind you of everything that I, Jesus, have told you. So Jesus is the first advocate and the Spirit is the second. But Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not leaving you. When I go up to my Father, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send another advocate. I'm your advocate now, but I'm about to go home to my Father. So I'm going to send you another advocate in my place. He will be the Holy Spirit and he will take my place in your life. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the Holy Spirit is our advocate, our legal representative here on earth in the courtroom of our hearts. And Jesus is our advocate in the courtrooms of heaven. The Holy Spirit is our advocate in the courtrooms of our hearts here on earth. And Jesus, because he's ascended to be with his Father, is our advocate in the courtrooms of heaven. And back to our gathering scripture that Will read. It says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So we have the advocate in our hearts, who is the Holy Spirit, and we have the advocate in the courts of heaven, that is Jesus Christ. We have two advocates for us. Back to the O.J. Simpson trial. Johnny Cochran, on O.J. Simpson's defense, knew that the evidence was overwhelmingly against O.J. Simpson. The only piece of evidence that they had working in their favor was that the gloves didn't fit and the whole jury saw it. And so as he was preparing his closing arguments for the case, he developed this trite saying that he gave to the jury that everybody remembers, and Paul remembers it. He said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And so that was his trite, kind of cute way of dealing with the one piece of evidence that the defense had in their favor. But they knew that this was really the only piece of evidence and that all the other evidence was against O.J. Simpson. And so he knew that he had to develop a closing argument that was based upon emotion. He had to develop an emotional closing argument. And this is why the context of that race tension begun by Rodney King is so critical to understanding the O.J. Simpson trial. 
because Johnny Cochran used that racial tension to his advantage to build an emotional argument for his closing statements to the jury. And what he was able to do is he was able to say to the jury, you have the power, jury. You have the power because you can either, you have a choice. He said to that jury, you can either indict O.J. Simpson and perpetuate this narrative of racism that we've seen, or you can acquit O.J. Simpson and take a stand against this racism. You can either side with a victim of racism and set them free in O.J., or you can stand with the perpetuators of racism in the police and continue this narrative of racism. That's how he framed his closing argument, this emotional argument about, of course I want to stand against racism, so I'm going to quit O.J. It was not an evidence-based argument. It was completely an emotional argument exploiting the racial tension that was there at the time. And that's how, largely, how O.J. got off with his not guilty verdict, despite all the evidence against him. And I bring this up because I think that sometimes, if we think about Jesus as our advocate before the Father in heaven, I think sometimes we can imagine him making an emotional case. And the language of 1 John 2, 1 lends itself to that. Look at this language. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. And so we imagine, as we imagine Jesus pleading our case before the Father, we imagine just that, that he's making this emotional appeal to his dad on our behalf, that he goes, come on, Father, you're loving, you're merciful. It's true this child of yours has sinned, but, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Didn't you say that somewhere in your word? Mercy triumphs over judgment? Maybe it's just a praise song, but come on, Dad. Let this person off. You can do this. Come on, Dad. Prove them, prove them that you're more loving than you are judgmental. Right? Come on. You love this child. Please, this time you can do it. And the father goes, oh, okay, fine, son, for you. I'll let this child off, you know, right? We imagine... Jesus making this emotional appeal on our behalf. But the problem with that is, how much longer can Jesus keep that up? What happens when God is having a bad day? What happens when the Father is kind of salty? And pre-trial, Jesus comes into the room with us and says to us, you know, Bill, the Father's feeling kind of salty today, and my rhetorical skills are kind of running on empty, and so we might not be able to get you off today. You know, or at one point, Jesus is pleading our emotional case, and he says, come on, Father, you're loving. And the Father says, you know what, Son, Jesus, I just think that this person has done too much bad this time. We're back in the court again for this same sin over and over again, and I'm sick of letting this child off. So I'm going to let him get what's coming to him. At what point does Jesus fail in making that emotional argument before the Father? Probably a long time ago, if that's the case. But the wonderful, incredible news this morning is that he's not making an emotional case. He is making a case of evidence. He's not pleading for mercy. He is standing as our advocate and rising up to our defense and making our case that's littered with evidence. Because when he stands to our defense and he says, Father, this child has sinned. You and I both know it, that this child has committed many, many sins. And we both know that sin demands payment. And you are just, and your justice requires payment of death for this sin. But then he says, but Father, you already have your payment. And he lifts up his hands for the whole court to see. And we see the holes in his hands. 
And he says, here is your payment, Father. And therefore, I declare this child not guilty. Guilty. 